Good morning. I'm personally of the belief that the best sermons are given when the congregation knows the pastor, so I'll just give you a brief introduction to me as quick as possible. You really only need to know four things. My name is Cole Brown. I love Jesus. I love pro wrestling, and I love boy bands. With that said, you'll now be able to connect with me because I'm sure you can relate to me on every one of those points. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Matthew invited me this morning to preach about love. I would like to say right up front, that is not something my wife would have asked me to do. I'm just not very good at it. But I am going to talk about love not on my own authority, but on the authority of the scriptures. Love is a very difficult thing to preach a sermon about, especially from what is probably the most famous passage in all of the history of world literature, 1 Corinthians 13. It's difficult to talk about things that we already think we understand. It's difficult to talk about things that we all hear the word and assume that we know what there is to know about the subject. Think about our culture. Love is unavoidable. We are constantly, constantly, constantly talking about love. Every song on our radios is singing about some form of love. Every song in our iTunes playlist about some form of love. Every story of every movie we've ever watched has to at the very least slide a little hint in the story about love. Even today our political discussions have become very much so about love and what that means for various sides. The books we read, the commercials we watch, the social media feeds that take over our various screens, love, 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 love. For those of us uh, who live in this culture, our senses are constantly overwhelmed by conversation about love. We have all of these famous sayings that we think they know what they mean. Love is blind. Love hurts. Love is eternal. Love is the reason. Love is enough. Love wins. Love conquers all. Love is all we need. And for those with really bad taste in food, I'm loving it. We have also, sorry. And we have also listened to countless sermons I'm imagining on the very same topic. And today will be no exception. We, as a culture, we as American people, love to talk about love. And yet I fear that for all of our talking about love, we don't really know what we're talking about. What do we talk about when we talk about love? What do we hear when we hear the word love? If we went around the room this morning and said, give us a one-sentence definition of love, how many different definitions would we have, even in a group of people who share so much in common in Christ? We love to talk about love, and yet I fear that we don't always know what we talk about when we talk about love. Speaking for myself, if, if I really understood what I was talking about, wouldn't my life look a little bit different? Speaking for the church that I'm a part of and churches I've been a part of, if we really understood what we were talking about when we talked about love, wouldn't our church life look a little bit different? 
I'm convinced personally that we have heard enough talk about love. I'm convinced personally that the last thing you need today is another voice talking about love. What I think we do need is a voice reminding us what it is we talk about when we talk about love. We're always talking about it, but but we need to be reminded, what is it exactly that we talk about when we talk about love? That's what 1 Corinthians 13 does for the Corinthian church in the context of a very strong rebuke from the Apostle Paul against a church that he loves and yet has displayed, despite all of its spiritual wisdom, despite all of its spiritual maturity, that it doesn't know exactly what it's talking about when it talks about love. And it does so in a way that's not only applicable to this church from 2,000 years ago in a faraway place, but which I believe is immediately and directly applicable to me, to you, to the church, to all of us. So as we look at it together today, I believe that we'll get a little bit more clarity for those of us for whom this is new and a well-needed reminder for those of us for whom this is old news of what we're talking about when we talk about love. And that will help us to love better as individuals, love better as a community, and even more importantly, recognize the love that we already have. The first thing we'll see is that when we talk about love, we are not talking primarily about a verb. We are talking primarily about a motivation that lies behind all of our verbs. Let's read the first three verses here of 1 Corinthians 13. The apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, pretty impressive, but have not love, I am nothing. Even if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my very own body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is not primarily a verb, but primarily the motivation behind all of our verbs. I'm a fan, as I mentioned, of boy bands, and a common phrase that's repeated in songs like this is, love is not a noun. Love is a verb. It's interesting that in that very sentence, love is used not as a verb, but as a noun. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, the... (laughs) It's true. In 1 Corinthians 13, if you read all the way through it, as we will in a moment, love is brought up time and time again. It is never used as a verb. That doesn't mean that love has nothing to do with our verbs. It means that before it's a verb, it's something that lies behind our verbs. Paul lists a number of verbs here in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 13 that look like love and look like really admirable and great accomplishments. Even if I give my body to be burned alive, even if I give everything I have, that looks like love, doesn't it? If you were to think of the quintessential example of love, you would point right to that. Yet Paul says, if behind that action is not loving motivation, no matter how pretty it looks, no matter how many movies they might make about me, no matter how many songs they might sing about me, it's not love, it's a clanging symbol, and he doesn't say it is nothing, 
He says, I am nothing. Our actions as human beings, all of them, don't derive their primary meaning from the action itself, but from the motivation behind the actions. I can tell you from experience, although I wish I couldn't, that it is very, very easy to do wonderfully good things and apparently loving things for reasons that are not so good, for reasons that are not so loving. Sometimes we do really impressive things and really loving things like the things Paul mentions in those opening three verses. But behind that, at least in part, is pride. I do this because it makes me feel good about myself. I do this because it makes me feel worthy as a human being. Other times we're not motivated primarily by pride, but motivated perhaps at least in part by guilt. I feel bad about the things I've done. I feel bad about the things I haven't done. So let me do this so that I can feel better about myself. Very easy to do apparently loving things for reasons that have nothing to do with love of others. Pride or guilt or thirdly, another very common motivation behind actions even like the ones Paul describes here, is manipulation. I want you to love me. And so I do these things so that you'll look at me, you'll admire me, and you'll return to me what I did for you. I want God to love me. And so I do really impressive things in obedience to him so that he will return my impressive obedience with love and blessing to me. I can be doing the most apparently loving things you've ever seen and yet at the same time not be motivated in even the slightest degree by love for God nor by love for you, but by pride or by guilt or by manipulation. And Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that when we do apparently loving actions, for reasons other than true love, which we'll talk about more in a moment, that we and our actions are nothing more than a clanging symbol. The church that I used to pastor had drums up on stage and the kids would come up at the end of the service every single week. Kids with, as of yet, no musical talent whatsoever. And you know what they would do. They would just start hitting and banging on the cymbal over and over and over again. And if you've ever heard that sound, just a cymbal by itself without any purpose or accompanying music, it is an ugly sound. It is obnoxious even. And it is devoid of any meaning. It's not carrying anything. It's not bringing any rhythm or or anything else into the song. It's just by itself. When we do really great things for reasons other than love, our lives are like that clanging cymbal, just a noise before God, a noise with no meaning, a noise separated from everything that matters and would have given it meaning. The only way that our impressive actions have any actual meaning is if they are motivated by real, true, genuine love. When our verbs are motivated by love, when the actions of our life are motivated by love, they're no longer just that solitary clanging symbol They're in beat, they're a part of the music, a part of God's music, a part of God's song, and they cease being meaningless and become meaningful, and they bring pleasure to the ears of our Lord. The question is, 
or what's behind what we do. I'm going to ask you to consider a question for a minute. What are your most impressive accomplishments? What are the loving actions that you perform on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? If someone were to come to you today and say, are you a loving person? What would be the thing you pointed to as evidence to say, yeah, I think I'm more or less a loving person. What would you point to? If someone were to come to you today and say, is your church community a loving community? What would you point to to be the evidence to say, yeah, you know what? The gathering is a, is a loving church community. What would you point to for you? What would you point to for your church? Where do those come from? Do the things that you would point to flow from uncorrupted, genuine love for God and for others? Perhaps they do. Or do they flow at least in part or at times from a prideful desire to get what you want or a motivation of guilt to feel better about who you are or what you've done or a motivation of manipulation to get love in return from God or from others? What lies beneath To illustrate what we're getting at here, I'm going to use an example from my own life. Sometimes my wife and I fight. It's a fact of life. And when we have these, these fights, um, I am often, often, the first person to repent, the first person to seek reconciliation, the first person to try to make it right. And if we invited you into our house and allowed you to just sit and watch my wife and I fight and then reconcile, you would watch me, and I'm just going to be honest, you would think, wow, that guy is humble. That Cole, he must really love Jesus, the way that he lovingly acknowledges his sin and even repents of things and is willing to take on things that maybe he wasn't all the way responsible for. And he goes and he reconciles himself to his wife. I am am really impressed with that guy. But if you could see in here, it wouldn't be so impressive. Because you would notice that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes it's really genuine by the work of the Spirit. Other times, um, it's that pride of, okay, I've just done something and responded in a way that's sinful against God, but if I respond in this way right now before her, I'm doing all right. I can feel good about myself. I can deal with the guilt of my, of my response. I can hold on to the pride of responding this way prior to my wife and use that against her if I ever need to use such a thing against her in the future. And I do it out of manipulation. I don't like tension. I don't like to live in it for long periods. And so if I rush to repentance and rush to reconciliation, sometimes the motivation isn't that I'm truly humbled and truly loving. Sometimes the motivation is I just want life to get back to normal. Let's just... And the tension will get back to normal and everything will be good. Sometimes I do things that look so impressive and loving and yet are from such a wicked and self-centered place. If you have kids, you've seen the childish version of this when one of them does something to the other that they ought not do and you say to them, go and apologize to your brother. You need to tell your brother you're sorry. And what do they do? Sorry. Right? They do the loving thing, although they haven't learned how to trick us yet. 
But they're not doing it because they love their sibling. They're doing it because they love themselves and they don't want to feel your wrath or your discipline. They just want to end it and move on with their life. As adults, we do the same thing. We don't always make it as obvious, though, which is even more troubling. We as human beings love to focus on what we do in order to convince ourselves that we know love and that we're loving people. But what we do by itself, by itself, what we do reveals nothing. What we do is important, but what we do by itself is not sufficient data to know if we truly know love, if we truly are loving. Paul says it's not enough to know what you do. You have to know why you do it. For me, the past couple of weeks as I've wrestled with this passage and, and being with you this morning, this has made me exceedingly uncomfortable. Let me try to explain why. As Matthew explained, about a year ago, actually a year ago this week, my wife, my two kids, and myself, we moved to Mexico City, Mexico, a city of 25 million people, less than 8% of whom are evangelical. And of that 8%, about 6% are in health and wealth churches with the false gospel that we've exported so kindly out of the States down to whoever will take it. Mexico is the first reached Latin American country with the gospel in the history of the Americas. And yet to this day, Mexico remains the least reached country with the gospel in the Americas. It is a country ravaged by darkness, corruption, distrust, some of which our country has played a hand in, violence, drugs, and so much more. And yet it is a country filled with 120 million people in the country and 25 million people in our city, one-fifth of the country, that God desperately loves. People who reflect his image, people who show off who he is, and people who his son came, lived, and died for. So we went there, motivated, we think, by love. The love of wanting to go into this place that so desperately needs to know the life and love of Jesus instead of the guilt and religious tricks that they've been accustomed to that other people brought to them. And so we went to help plant churches and strengthen churches that would allow this city of 25 million people who don't even have enough healthy churches to serve 25,000 people to see Jesus at work in his people, transforming a community and be drawn to him. If you'd like to hear more about Mexico, if you'd like to hear more about what we're doing in Mexico, my wife and I will be around. We would love to answer any questions. We'd love to talk with you. Also, if you're interested in partnering in any way, we have a beautiful little sheet that looks something like this on that back table back there under the number six where you could sign up to receive oh, email updates, uh, where we would send prayer requests about every six weeks and updates about what we're doing. Those who are interested in partnering financially could circle something on that. we get in touch with you. Whatever you want to do. But why in the world am I talking about that right now in the middle of a sermon instead of talking about it before I started or after I finished? Because of 1 Corinthians 13 and the past 15 years of my life since I became a follower of Christ. 
I left my dream job. I worked uh, in music and it was everything I had ever wanted to do my whole life. I left my, my dream job of security and some level of importance to follow Jesus. And then I, I started a multi-ethnic gospel-centered church in the least religious and whitest city in North America. And everyone told me week after week after week, it can't be done. You're, you're so foolish. I got the opposite of money doing that. I got the opposite of importance doing that. I spent the next 10 years of my life uh, in the darkest parts of people's lives trying to bring hope and light and healing. I spent the next 10 years of my life sweating over and over again over God's word, trying to serve God's people. I had some of the worst emotional experiences and relational experiences you can imagine because ministry can get really, really messy. One year ago, I left this church that I had given the past nine years at that point of my life to, and me and my family moved to a tiny, tiny, tiny little apartment in a dangerous country where I would be forced to strain myself and humiliate myself every hour of every day as I try to learn the culture and the language where I would have to watch my daughter cry herself to sleep every single night for hours at a time because of how much she misses her home, where I would have to watch my son cry every single morning about going into the school where he would be an outsider and, and be, uh, not be able to participate and feel safe as he had in the past. And I had to ask myself as I went through all of this this week, all of these sacrifices which look so much like love, How do I know? How do I know if all this stuff that we've sacrificed is really coming from true and genuine love for God and for his people? Or if like other things in my life, it's, it's partially motivated by pride, partially motivated by manipulation, partially motivated by guilt. How do I know that with all this stuff, that, that all this pain, all this frustration, if we are making beautiful music as a family before the ears of God, or if we as a family are doing nothing more than clanging a cymbal over and over and over again. How do I really know if I fit into this category that Paul describes in those first three verses of somebody who's nothing because all the things I do are not flowing from love or somebody who's something because love is pushing each of these sacrifices for the glory of God. How do you know the sacrifices you make for your family, the sacrifices you make for your church, the ways you serve others, the way you serve in your church, the way that you seem to be patient with others? How do you know that all of these things underneath are rooted in and motivated by love and not by these other things that so easily can capture our hearts and even trick us into thinking that we're the most loving people that we know. How do we know? That's the second thing I think we're going to see as we read the next few verses. We're going to see that when we talk about love, we're not primarily talking about a feeling, not a verb nor a feeling. We're primarily talking about a state of being. We're going to read now from verses four and following. How do we know what we're motivated by? Well, if it's love, here's what love looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It does not dishonor others. It is not irritable nor resentful. It does not rejoice at evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Let's pause there for a minute. This is the famous list of what love looks like, right? It's the famous list that's read at every wedding, wedding irrespective of faith or religious affiliation. This famous list. But I want us, as we think through this famous list, to notice two things. I want us to notice, firstly, that this is not a list of loving feelings. There's nothing wrong with loving feelings. I love loving feelings. But what we can't do is say, I know all the sacrifices I've made are motivated by love because I feel like they're motivated by love. What we can't do is say, I am a very loving person because I feel these warm feelings of love when I do these things. Paul doesn't say, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that that's what love is. He describes love for us and Beautiful loving feelings are not what he describes. And so when we talk about love, we're not primarily talking about a verb. We're also not primarily talking about our feelings. We're talking about something else entirely. Another thing I want us to notice before we look at the list itself is that it is not a list of what you must do to become loving. It is not a list of behaviors that you must imitate that therefore achieve love. It's a description of love. It's a, actually, it's love personified. Love looks like this, God says. He doesn't say, okay, okay, okay. If you're not motivated by love, you gain nothing. Therefore, be more patient, be more kind, do not envy, do not boast, and everything's okay. He doesn't um, give us that easy of an out. He also doesn't give us that heavy of a burden. I have to go outside these doors today and be more patient, more loving, less arrogant, etc., etc. He gives us something else. He says, I'm interested in showing you love. I want you to know what love is, and here's what it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's a fact about what love is. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. In other words, in the context of this passage... Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not primarily telling us to go love, although there are many passages that tell us that. In this passage, Paul is primarily concerned with helping us to know love. If we know love, then we can celebrate it when we see it and repent when we don't. If we know love, we can celebrate it when we see it reflected in the life of our church body and we together can repent when we don't see love reflected in our church body. That's what Paul's doing with 1 Corinthians 13 in this letter to the Corinthian church. He's showing the Corinthian church, here's what love looks like. Because he couldn't point at how they were living and say, that's what love looks like. He is saying, I want you to look and see what love looks like so that as I've reminded you already up to this point in the letter that your spiritual wisdom by itself is not love, that that fighting over which leader is better and which leader has the silver tongue, that's not love. 
That being stingy instead of generous with your money, that's, that's not love. That taking pride in your spiritual gifts because they're more impressive or different than those of your brothers and sisters, that's not love. That, that allowing someone to live in heinous sin without intervening for their good, that's not love. He says this is what love is because he wants them to see it and be humbled. Oh, that's, that's not us. He wants them to repent and he wants them to turn from what they've been living as to love itself. He believes that as they humble themselves, and I believe that as we humble ourselves, and as they repent, and as we repent, that's actually the very process, humility and repentance, through which this kind of love starts to show itself. So how do they know? How, how do we know? If it's not a verb that we can just point to and say, I do that, How do we know if love is present? If it's not a feeling that we can just point to and say, I feel that, how do we know if love is present? To answer that question, Paul becomes kind of like one of those guys who sits down in a police station at the desk of an artist and begins to describe what he saw. And the crime sketch artist begins to sketch out the very physical and visible descriptors that Paul gives to him and creates this picture so that all of us then can look at what Paul saw. We can look at this finalized picture of what love looks like and say, okay, that's what love is. So as he begins describing these characteristics to the crime sketch artist, he personifies love and describes it just as you would describe what kind of haircut a guy has or or how big his nose is, uh, what skin tone he has. Paul says, here's what love looks like so you can sketch it out. Love is patient. Love bears with people in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their foolishness. He goes on and says, "As, as you're thinking of that, love is also kind. It is gentle and thoughtful toward the object of its love. Keep sketching here. Love does not envy. Love actually celebrates what others have instead of lusting for what others have. He says also you need to know that that love does not boast and love is not proud. Love has no interest in comparing itself to others. Also, you should know as you're sketching this out, Paul says, love does not dishonor others. It's not resentful. Love is concerned with exalting other people. It's not concerned with diminishing other people. Love, he describes as we're painting this picture, is not self-seeking. The good that love does, it does not for its own benefit not for pride or manipulation or guilt, but purely for the good of the beloved. Love, Paul describes, love isn't easily angered. He doesn't say love doesn't get angry. If you've ever actually loved, you know love gets angry. But love is not easily angered. It doesn't get wrong without cause, and it doesn't get wrong any earlier or any more strongly than it needs to. He says also you need to know that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love and scorekeeping, they don't go together. 
Love doesn't come to the beloved and say, you know, I've done this, 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 and this, and you haven't even given me so much as a thank you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. He goes on describing love always protects. It wants the best for the beloved, and it's willing to fight for the best of the beloved. Love always trusts. It believes the best about the beloved, even though no one else would dare to believe what love believes about the beloved. Love always hopes. It pursues the best for the beloved and believes that it can come to pass. He goes on, love always perseveres. No matter how many times the beloved resists, no matter how many times the beloved fails, love stays in the ring. It takes a blow and it takes a blow and it takes a blow, but it stays in the ring and it keeps fighting. It perseveres against all opposition. And then Paul says something really intriguing. He says, don't stop the picture yet. You need to also know that love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It's a really interesting phrase. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. First, I think God wants to clarify that for all of love's patience and all of love's perseverance, love does not wink at evil. Love does not ignore evil. Love is not blind to evil. Love does not permit that abuse continue, for example. Love does not stand and watch as the beloved destroys themselves, even if the beloved wants to do the very thing that's destroying them. Love intervenes. It doesn't rejoice in evil. And then the second thing you notice there is that if we were just writing this ourselves, and we started with love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in we would naturally assume that the next word would be good. We would contrast evil with the opposite of evil. Good. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chooses the word truth. And in his inspired writings, the word truth almost always refers either to Jesus Christ, his person, or to the message, the gospel, the gospel message of Jesus Christ's person and work. In other words, love also has an element of worship to it. Love does not delight in evil, it delights in Christ. Love does not delight in evil, it delights in what Christ desires for the beloved. It rejoices in the truth. This is love personified. This is what love looks like. And if you and I are the the crime sketch artists, and we're sketching out every detail of what Paul describes, I think the final picture is going to be really, really clear. Quite vivid, in fact. But if we put it up, well, we won't. (laughs) If we put it up here, the picture of what we just sketched out, it would be so clear to us. But just as it would be clear to us, we would immediately recognize that this picture that we just sketched out does not fit the profile of the Corinthian church. And for the grand majority, of us, grand majority of us, if we looked at that very same picture, we would acknowledge that it doesn't necessarily fit our profile either. 
It certainly doesn't always fit our profile. As we looked, we would also say, you know what? I love my church, but my church doesn't perfectly fit the profile we just sketched out either. There's something missing. It's not a picture right now of us. And I think that's the intent. I think that is why God inspired these very descriptors to be given so that we could sketch this very picture and that the Corinthians first and now today us could look at this magnificent sketch and recognize that we don't fit the profile and instead of responding in personal satisfaction, Instead of responding in pride, we would look at it and we respond in humility because we want to fit that profile, but we recognize that we don't perfectly match what was just sketched. Love is not primarily a verb, it's something behind that. Love is not primarily even a feeling, it's a state of being, which leads us to our third and final point. When we talk about love, and we talk about love all the time, we are not talking primarily about something we possess. We are talking primarily about something that possesses us. When we talk about love, we are not talking primarily about something we possess, but rather something that possesses us. If we're honest and we've sketched out this picture based on everything Paul just said, we look and we say, that's a really clear picture. That's a really vivid picture. And it's not of me and it's not of my church and it's not of the Corinthians. That's Jesus. That picture that we just drew based on Paul's descriptors, that is none other than God in the flesh. That is Jesus Christ himself. It is he who continues to be patient with you in spite of your continued sin and foolishness. You look at the picture and you see Jesus Christ, he who is kind to you, even when the only thing you deserve is judgment. You look at the picture and you see he who does not envy, he who does not boast, he who is not arrogant or proud, but rather he who being God himself humbled himself and became like us and came to us in order to save us. You look and you see him who is not resentful. You see him who does not dishonor others, but rather allowed himself to be dishonored by the very people who owe their existence to him for you. You look and you see the one who is not self-seeking, but is self-emptying, pouring out even the drops of his very own blood for the good of the beloved who has rejected him. You look at the picture and you see him who is not easily angered, but who instead chose to take all of God's anger on himself for your sin in your place. You look at the picture and you see him who keeps no record of wrongs, but who instead freely gives to you his spotless record of righteousness. You look at the picture of 1 Corinthians 13 and you see a picture of him who does not delight in evil, but who himself has conquered evil by allowing evil to apparently conquer him. He who does not delight in evil, but rather himself is the truth personified. You look at the picture and you see him who always protects you from your spiritual enemies and from the enemy of the flesh and sin by standing in the middle of both of them. You look and you see he who always trusts 
who always hopes and who always perseveres with you when no one else could, when no one else would, in spite of your defeat after defeat after defeat, your failure after failure after failure. He has remained in the ring with you and he has not stopped fighting for you. He loves you. You look at the picture of 1 Corinthians 13 and you see him. Why? Why would the God of the universe who has all power and all authority to do with us as he pleases choose instead to love like we just read? Why would he choose to love you? My wife and I used to do a ton of premarital counseling And we would always ask the same question to the couple sitting at our dining room table. We would say, tell us why you love your fiance. And the answers would always be more or less the same. I love her because she's beautiful. I love him because he's so smart and intelligent. I love him because of how he serves me. I love her because of how she treats me. And we would gently explain to them that as sincere as everything they just said was, it does not fit the profile described in 1 Corinthians 13. All of that is self-seeking. I love her because I really want to be married to somebody beautiful because of what it says about me. I love him because I really want to be partnered up with somebody who's smart because of what it says about me. I love him because he serves me, and who wouldn't like that? I love her because she treats me right, and who wouldn't want that? But if that's the basis of our love, in addition to being self-serving, it is temporal. Because what happens when somebody else is more beautiful, more smart, more kind, more serving? What happens when the person you pledge to love forever doesn't love you like they used to, doesn't treat you like they used to, doesn't serve you like they used to. Their beauty fades with time and they're not as beautiful as you thought they once were. His intelligence is outshined by someone else or outshined by his stubbornness that you come to know once you're married. What do you do in all of that? That's why I'm so grateful that 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't answer the question, why do you love us, Jesus, with because you're lovely. It answers the question like this. I love you because I love you. And we would love for him to say, no, I love you because of something great and impressive in you. But he does something even more loving and even more good for us. He says, I love you because I love you. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8 explain just that I'm going to paraphrase it for you this morning. Do I love you because you're loving? Did I, did I choose you because you're lovely? Did I love you because you serve me? No, 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 no. I chose you because I wanted to choose you. I loved you because I wanted to love you. And that means you don't have to fear what's going to happen when you stop being beautiful. You don't have to fear what's going to happen when you don't serve him like you used to. You don't have to fear what's going to happen when you look in the mirror like we're doing this morning and looking at a sketch of who we're supposed to be and recognizing that you don't fit the profile of love described in 1 Corinthians 13, not to the degree 
that you would like to or that God would have you to. And this reality should provoke something deep within you. Faith. Faith not in your ability to love, but in his ability to love. Faith not in yourself, but in he who loved you at the expense of his own life. And the more you recognize that, the more you recognize how far you are from 1 Corinthians 13 love, the more you will marvel that he chose to love you with 1 Corinthians 13 love in spite of all that, in the midst of all of that, eternally. And as you do that, as you do that, your faith, your faith will not only marvel at his love, but will find itself nourished by his love and growing. And if your faith grows, your love grows along with it. The book of Galatians in chapter five explains that love is not primarily a verb. Love is not primarily, primarily a feeling. It is a fruit of the spirit, which means it's not something primarily that you possess, but something that takes possession of you or someone rather that takes possession of you and begins to live its own life through you. The Holy Spirit purchased for you by Christ begins to love through you. This is why Galatians says faith works itself out through love. Faith, not in yourself, works itself out through love. Faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done works itself out through love. You want to be more loving? Look more at Jesus. Faith works itself out through love. You want to be more loving? Look less at your own ability to love and more at his. Faith works itself out through love. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit and this is what we talk about when we talk about love. Even if we don't know it, this is what we're talking about when we talk about love. We're talking about Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and his Holy Spirit who lives now in us by faith to love in ways that we can't love so that one day we'll look again at that sketch of 1 Corinthians 13 and we'll see a little bit more color filled in where it used to be black and white and we'll see ourselves a little more clearly where we used to not see ourselves at all. And one day, in 1 Corinthians 13 says this, we will see him as he is and we will be as he is. Not looking a little bit like what we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, but entirely. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we don't have to manufacture love from within, but instead that the love we've received from you flows through us. Thank you, God, that though we don't merit love, you have chosen to love us. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to earn your love or keep your love, but that you freely give your love to us for no other reason than that you love us. Help us to see your patience with us, that it might move us to be patient with others. Help me to see your kindness to us so that it might move us to be kinder to others. Help us to see that your love for us is not self-seeking so that we might cease being self-seeking in the way we love and relate to others. Teach us, not just about love, but teach us love as you continue to love us and your spirit responds in us by empowering us to love others in your name. Amen.